So I'm glad to be with you this morning, um, opening Psalm 19 together. Um, as many of you might know, my name's Nathan. Um, I'm the director of Christian Challenge. It's a college ministry at the University of Delaware. And I, I feel like one of the things I've learned in my kind of four-ish years doing ministry, um, there's been a lot of things, um, but one that stands out is that people will show up to and commit to things that they value. That seems like simple truth. Of course, you, you show up to something that you find value in, but I think effectiveness in ministry, and really effectiveness in any kind of occupation or role that you find yourself in, won't come from kind of big, flashy things, big, over-the-top things. Those things can be great sometimes. Um, we do events here at the church to bring in people in the community, um, but ultimately, you will keep people with what you bring them in with, with what they find to be valuable. And I think part of that is true with you here this morning. Um, you're here this morning because you made a decision that you value being here in this room at 11 a.m. more than literally anything else in the world. Um, that's, that's what you're saying by being here. Um, everywhere in the world is accessible. You can get on a plane and fly somewhere else. You could be sitting at Dunkin' Donuts in the rain. You could be doing many other things, but you decided being here was valuable. That's why you're here. Now, there may be many factors at play. Um, you might have very good godly reasons for being here. You might have been drugged here this morning by someone else that you're sitting next to. Um, don't look at them right now. But when the time rolled around this morning, you used your reasoning to determine that coming to church was the best way to spend your Sunday morning. And if we zoom out a bit, your entire life, your entire existence is formed by revelation of truth, by gaining knowledge, by pulling from all these different sources and acting upon that truth. From the moment you were born, you were learning and you were acting upon what you have learned. Now, the initial information you learned wasn't very complicated. Um, you discovered pretty quickly, I feel bad when I don't have food. I feel better when I eat food. So I'm gonna do everything I can to get food. That was pretty much everyone in this room. Your initial existence was that kind of logic and reasoning going on in your head. In these initial stages of life, you were not thinking far beyond yourself and your needs. And I can't necessarily see into the mind of any infant in this room, um, but if I could, I don't think they're contemplating the greater truths of the universe. I don't think they're thinking of much beyond themselves and the needs that they have and responding to them. But as we grow older, as we mature, we become more perceptive of the world around us. My two-year-old son is now entering a phase where he's noticing emotion more. If my wife is at all upset or sad, he'll run over to her, he'll kind of rub her shoulder and say, mommy, what wrong, mommy, what wrong? He's learning, he's growing, he's seeing there's a world around me. Now, right now, his world is mommy. His, his mommy runs his little world. Um, she's very active in his life, makes him lunch, changes his diaper, all the things that moms do. And when mommy is away or mommy is upset, his world quickly crumbles because she is everything. Now, obviously, the world's not going to fall apart if mommy goes away for a few days. I'd like to think I'm good enough of a dad that I can hold it together for a little bit. 
But as my son grows older, he'll start to ask the questions we all ask. What is ultimate? Because much to her dismay, there will be a day when he realizes mommy isn't ultimate. I can make my own peanut butter and jelly. I can figure this out. I don't necessarily need mom by me all the time. He'll start to ask the questions we all ask. What, what's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of existence? What am I doing here? And we'll see this morning in the 19th Psalm, David answers some of these questions. Ultimately, this is a song of praise to the Lord, primarily centering around the revelation of God himself. We'll see David's answer to the questions, what's this about? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And the formula for human existence remains the same. We'll see a revelation of truth, a gaining of knowledge about who God is, followed by a response to that revelation. And we're actually going to break this text into three parts. I'll give you kind of a brief kind of idea of where we're going this morning. The first thing we're going to look at in our text today, the first couple of verses, we'll see God's glory in creation. This is what we will call the general revelation of God, that we can look at creation and know that God exists. And this starts with a general assumption that there is something beyond ourselves that created the world, some kind of intelligent being that we're calling God. Now, we're not going to get into like the details of that argument at this time, but I think if you look at it from a higher perspective, even the most complicated theories that people have come up with to explain creation, to explain how things got here, even all of those theories, I think, have a hard time explaining how something came from nothing. So we're starting with this assumption that there is a designer who created everything. After that, we're going to move toward God's glory in his word. Move toward from a general revelation toward a special revelation, as we'll call it. That God has not only revealed himself in the created things, but he's also spoken through the created things, specifically through his people, and more specifically through his word, the Bible. And then after these things, at the end of our passage, we will see David's response, which we're going to apply as our response to the revelation of God. If God has truly revealed himself, then we must respond. And David ends with his response to the word of God. So let's dive in this morning. We're going to start the beginning, um, verse one, with God's glory in creation. I'm going to read this verse for us one more time. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we've been in the Psalms for a few weeks now, if you've been here at Ogletown um, over the last few weeks. And if you're not extremely familiar with the Psalms, I think what's important to remember right off the bat is that this is a book of poetry. It's a book of songs, praises to the Lord. There's lots of imagery, um, lots of like poetic forms going on here if you analyze it in that way. Um, Now, obviously, David is not saying here that the sky literally speaks to him or that the stars are kind of aligning to form words like alphabet soup in the sky. That's that's not where he's going with this. He's, He's capturing in this image the awe of creation. John Piper says it like this. He says, the really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but of self-forgetfulness. 
standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. What Piper is saying here is that even the staunchest of atheists don't look out at creation and praise themselves. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're questioning everything I'm saying. That's great. I'm glad you're here. I believe that you would stand at the edge of the ocean or some mountain vista and look out, and you wouldn't think about how amazing you are. Rather, you would wonder what is beyond yourself, even if you're not sure of what that is. In theological terms, this is what we call God's general revelation to all people that he exists, that he's there. Paul contemplates this in Romans chapter one, verses 19 through 20, he says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And Romans chapter one isn't just referring to the good Christian who looks out at the beautiful sunset and says, wow, isn't God so wonderful? If we jump back a verse to verse 18, Paul prefaces this passage with this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So when Paul talks about God's attributes being plain, he's not talking about believers looking at creation and thinking God did this. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who don't know God at all. They look at the created world and they know there is a creator. So scripture shows us that David's observation of the sky proclaiming God's handiwork isn't just an observation of a righteous, godly man Scripture shows us that all people see evidence of God in creation. Let's move on to the beginning of our psalm here. Verses two through four. It says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So there can be a little bit of confusion here in verses two through four. Um, We have speech pouring out day to day, but then we get to verse three and David says, there's no speech. So naturally you read this and think, okay, so there's speech, but there's also no speech. I think David's point here is that creation speaks, but it doesn't actually speak. And that sentence in itself makes no sense, but, but when you think about anyone who's in relationship with any other human being, which is all of us here, whether that's a spouse or um, a sibling or a son or a parent, whatever it may be, um, the people that you interact with on a daily basis, we know well that you can communicate without actually speaking, whether that be through body language or actions. Um, this is essentially what David is referencing here. He's saying, Creation speaks, but it doesn't actually speak. It proclaims God's greatness without using a word. And the voice of creation covers the entire world. Let's move on with the rest of verse four. 
So their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So now David hones in on what I would call kind of the crown jewel of our universe, at least from what we know here on the planet Earth, and that's the sun. Now, I uh, put this together when the sun was out bright and shining and I was sweating. Um, Today's a terrible day for this illustration, but nevertheless, it seems like it's coming out out there. Um, The sun, as David describes, rushes. It bursts out in the morning and shines its light everywhere. Now, we're around the time of year when we put a little extra attention on the sun. In the winter, it's great. Um, You walk outside on a February day and feeling kind of the warmth of the sun is is nice. It's nice when it peaks out. But once mid-July rolls around, we resonate a little more with David's words that say there is nothing hidden from its heat. We spend a ridiculous amount of time, energy, money, relieving ourselves from the effects of the sun. And when something goes wrong, we see clearly that nothing is hidden from its heat. If the power failed in this building right now, even with the sun not like shining at full blast, we would all learn this truth very quickly. And just like the sun on a July afternoon, so the knowledge of God in creation is undeniable. The man who is stranded out in the desert can deny the existence of the sun along with this effects all that he wants. But as David said, nothing is hidden from its heat. I want to look back quickly to Romans 1, 19 through 20. I want to read this passage one more time and emphasize a few things. So once again, Paul says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then he says, so, so all of this is for the purpose of so that they are without excuse. What is revealed in this passage is that part of God's purpose in revealing himself in creation is to leave all of humanity without excuse excuse. He has disclosed enough about himself through the creation that everyone is obligated to recognize him and turn toward him. So this truth about God, this truth about creation, I think is very useful in our personal devotion. We can observe nature. We can see God in creation. Um, We can either walk outside or fly to some beautiful place in the world and enjoy it because God created it. We can recognize his greatness in creation. But I think it's also useful in our evangelism. It can often be difficult to find a starting point when you're trying to share Christ with someone who doesn't know him. But we can be encouraged that the Lord is already tugging on the hearts of unbelievers every single day when they look around at the world. What can be known about God is plain to them. No one can rightly look at the created world and deny God. So I think this is encouraging for us. Even in our evangelism, the starting point is already there. Everyone has a conviction of the existence of God. 
But when we kind of logically work through this, the question then becomes, well, then why, why even bring up evangelism? What's the point? If God's, if God's already revealed himself, what do I need to do? Why do I even need to point that out if God um, has done this through creation? Well, this is what David means when he says there is no speech, nor are there words. The mountains, the rocks, the trees, the rivers can reveal to us the existence of a God, but they don't literally speak to us. They don't tell us the full character and nature of God. They don't tell us the gospel, God's plan of salvation. General revelation only reveals God in a general sense. And that brings us to the next part of our passage. You see, one of the core beliefs, not only of our church here, but of the Christian faith, is that God has spoken to his people through his word, through scripture. That yes, God speaks through the created things, but specific speech comes through the word of God. This is why I always laugh um, internally, not externally, when someone tells me, man, I I believe in Jesus, that stuff's great, he was a good dude, um, he did a lot of good stuff, I totally believe in him, but the Bible, like, I don't buy it, it's antiquated, old book, irrelevant. My question for that person, and maybe you're that person, no offense, um, my question is, where did you learn about Jesus? The Jesus you're talking about, that you have all these great ideas about, where did you learn about him? You didn't make it up. You didn't stare at the stars and figure it out. You didn't sit there looking at a leaf and come up with this guy who came and was born of a virgin and died for the sins of the entire world. No, you read about Jesus in the Bible, in God's word. Or you heard about Jesus from someone who learned about Jesus from scripture. So if you are a Christian, you trust in the Bible for the revelation of God. And this revelation is what David reflects on in the next part of our psalm. Let's continue on through verses um, 7 through 11. Now, what we're going to do here for the next part of our passage um, is I want to take us through line by line and ask some questions. And I'd encourage you as we go through these questions, ask them of yourself. Interrogate yourself. David spends a little bit of time here reflecting on the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and his reaction to it. And what I want us to kind of look at ourselves and ask, is this how I respond to the word, to the revelation of God? Let's begin in verse seven. David starts by saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. A good question here, an obvious question. Does God's word revive your soul? When you're weary, when you're worn down, are you turning to the word of the Lord to revive you? Let's move on to the next part of this verse. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The question here, do you seek wisdom from Scripture? Are you so confident in Scripture to guide you that you're looking to it first for wisdom? Moving to verse 8. We can go to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Question here, 
Do you rejoice in the rightness of God's word or do you view him as an evil ruler with bad laws? I think there's many Christians, probably many in this room, who read the Bible, who would say they trust it and believe in the Bible, but they're not so sure it's good or right. Do you rejoice in the rightness of God's word? In the next part of this verse, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The question here, does God's word make things clearer for you? Is it a light to your path? Does it illuminate where you should go? Does it reveal truth that is blurry before you trust in it? Moving to the next verse, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Question here, do you believe that God's word endures, that it remains relevant, that it is for today, that it is for you here and now? Next, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Question there, do you trust that God's word is always true, that it contains no errors, that, it's, that it is truth, that it defines truth? Jesus himself says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe that? Next, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The question here, do you desire the word of God more than anything else in this world? More than riches, more than as David says, really good food, sweeter than honey. Do you desire God's word more than anything else in the world? And he ends the passage like this. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Final question I think we can ask ourselves here. Do you believe that obeying God's commands is worth it? That there is a reward and I'm not talking about just an eternal reward, eternity with Christ, although that's an amazing thing to look toward. I'm talking about, you think it's worth it now? Even if it brings pain and suffering, even if it's difficult, even if it brings slander, do you believe that God's word is good enough that it brings a great reward along with it? Now, obviously, David believes that God's word is of great value. That's pretty, that's pretty obvious from this passage. But I think we should stop and consider when this psalm was written. Now, David is writing about the law of the Lord. He's referencing likely early on in your Bible, um, the law that God laid forward for his people. And this psalm was written probably toward the end of David's life, but that's still only roughly 1,000 B.C. Now, David knew much about the law of the Lord, but if you're familiar with your Bible, um, we're, we're, we're in the middle here. Um, we're not toward the end when all the Jesus stuff comes up, when Christ comes and redeems his people. David, he, he wasn't around when Jesus came. Now, you can go through the Psalms and you can see many places where even the Psalms that he writes are pointing toward Christ and of course, we know that Christ came through the line of David. But what do we do with the rest of the Bible, the rest of our scriptures that David isn't talking about here? I think that's an important question to ask as we consider this passage. 
And I think what really helps us kind of put the pieces together is the intro to the book of Hebrews. And this helps us deal a lot with this idea of revelation, especially special revelation, your Bible after the Old Testament. Let's look together at this passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It's important we see Christ present in creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're talking all about revelation, and what we see in a passage like this is that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we see the pinnacle of God's revelation to his people. He reveals himself in nature. He's revealed himself through his word, but ultimately he chose to reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus. In fact, when we read through the Old Testament scriptures, we see prophecies and pictures of Christ. The plan all along was for God to reveal himself to his people in order to save them through Jesus. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, you will see a story that reveals the human condition. A story that shows us that we all start in the same place. Genesis, the creation narrative, shows us that God created the world. And he created it good. He created human beings to be good, to live perfectly under his ultimate rule. But soon after that, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They chose to live life their own way instead of living under the perfect rule of the Lord. And the punishment for their sin, for their rebellion against God, was death and judgment. So after this, as we continue on in your Old Testament, God chose a people for himself. They were called Israel. And his plan was to write <coughs> his redemption story through this people. And in the early books of scripture, you'll find the law. This is the law that David is talking about. Now, we tend to have negative connotations when we hear the word law. That's just kind of our, we, we, we don't like it. We know it's probably good. We know it's probably there for a reason, but it just seems so strict. Um, we're not usually joyful when we speak about the law, but in Psalm 19, we see David delights in the law. This was God speaking to human beings and telling them how to live in a way that pleases him. He delights in this. This is amazing. We can know how God wants us to live. David is looking at these laws and recognizing there is great reward for those who keep this. And after this, in the final section of our psalm, we see our response to the word of God. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
See, David's response is a cry to the Lord for help to keep him from hidden sins. A prayer that everything he says and the deepest longings of his heart would be pleasing to the Lord. So he delights in the law. He loves the law, but he's also recognizing, I need help. I can't keep this. You need to save me from myself, from sins that are hidden that I'm not even aware of. As you continue on reading in the Old Testament, you'll quickly see that humans don't do such a great job of keeping the law. Some people have problems with, especially the Old Testament, like it's brutal. I wouldn't let my kids read this. Like there's crazy stuff going on. There's prostitutes all over the place. Like there's, it's nuts. And that's true. It shows us that humans are broken, that we never kept the law well. Even David himself, as hard as he could try to keep the law, he found himself in sin. And this is where every human on earth finds themselves. It's where I find myself. We all have some knowledge of a higher power from what we see in the world around us. And we know that whatever rules this God has, we don't measure up. And our instinct is to work, to make it better. I can dig myself out. Even those of us who call ourselves Christians can often find ourselves trying to redeem ourselves by our own works. If we can just keep the law well enough, God will be pleased with us. And the problem with this approach is history, is your Old Testament. Our sin problem runs too deep to even keep God's rules well for an entire day. Now, in Romans chapter 7, back to Romans, Paul is wrestling with this same issue. He's trying to figure out the purpose of the law. In fact, he asks himself this rhetorical question, what's the law even good for? If we can't keep it, if it's just an impossible set of rules, why is it even here? And he says this in verse seven of chapter seven. He says, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul is concluding that the purpose of the law is to reveal our sinfulness, to show us God is holy and we are not. But this isn't the end of the story. This isn't just a set of rules that you're going to fail at tomorrow and God's walking away saying, good luck keeping that. How can it be possible for us to be blameless, innocent, acceptable before this holy God? Well, it's only through Jesus. If you continue reading on into the New Testament, God sent his son Jesus into the world and Christ perfectly kept the law. The law that David delights in, the law that is good, the law that we can't keep, Christ did on our behalf. Every rule we couldn't keep, Christ kept. He died a death upon a cross, taking the punishment that we deserve and rose from the dead in glory, conquering sin and death forever. So now, in order to be declared righteous, which righteous is perfect before God, only faith in Christ is required. And in judging those who believe, God is no longer looking upon the record of right and wrong that you and I hold, but rather, he's looking upon the record of Jesus who covers us. So, if you have not trusted in Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you Lay down your useless striving. Nothing else will save, nothing else will satisfy the way that Jesus does. Put your faith in him 
to cover you. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, I want to close by encouraging you. Don't lean on grace and despise holiness. Now certainly lean on grace. We all need to lean on grace daily, but don't do it to the point where you despise seeking holiness. This final verse here is a great prayer to pray, I think, daily. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's so easy to take a message like this and kind of ignore the pursuit of holiness because you've been shown grace. How much must it grieve the heart of your father when he sees his child wander back into sin after graciously being saved from it? Would you join with me in praying the final verses of this psalm together as we close? Lord, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.